You'll join me in Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning's sermon is called Young Man Arise. And our key words are dead, risen, and life for our worshipers in training. Now, as I read through this and thought about what we were about to read, I thought of something that many of you can identify with. And it really struck me as a parent that there are a few things more painful for me to even think about than the thought of losing one of my children to death. I, I know some of you have experienced a very hard providence of miscarriage. Others of you have attended your own child's funeral. If you think about it, it's, it's like putting a period at the beginning of a sentence. It doesn't make sense. There's so much ahead that could be, and yet it's the end. That sting of death strikes hard, and I imagine it's, it's felt in every bone of your body. And in a very real way, it is not supposed to be that way. No doubt in God's sovereignty, he, he rules over death. He numbers our days according to his great eternal plan. But death in general, and especially that of our own child, stings so badly and hurts so deeply because it is a very clear, in-your-face reminder of the reality of the fallenness of all of creation. It's a stark punctuation on the devastation of sin. It's a heart-rending example of the hopelessness and the, the helplessness that has come into the world. Such untimely, gut-wrenching pain. And this very thing was the emotional context of Jesus' next ministry endeavor in Galilee. If you remember last week, we, we saw Jesus' amazement at the faith of the centurion. And this morning, he moves on from Capernaum into a town called Nain and encounters a widow and her dead son. So let's read together, beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 7. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So Jesus travels with his disciples and a great crowd from Capernaum uh, with him to Nain, which is about a day's journey from where he was previously. And as they arrive at the city gates, what they're hearing is much weeping. They're hearing the playing of instruments. It's very obvious to them, no doubt, exactly what was going on. It was a great display of sorrow. Sorrow at the city gates. 
an open casket is being, is being carried out of the city with the lifeless body of a young man accompanied by his mother. No father. She was a widow. And while the large crowd was with her from the people of the town, most certainly included neighbors and and friends, there would have also most certainly been professional mourners as well, people who were hired to lead a large wailing crowd of people with flutes and cymbals and, and frenzied cries according to the written Jewish custom. The custom stated, even the poorest in Israel should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman. And the mourning would have grown louder and louder as they moved closer and closer to the gates. And the sorrow would have grown deeper and deeper. And certainly for this woman, greater than normal because it was the death of her only child a male child of a widow who would now be left with little ability to live on her own. The life of a widow without a son in the first century was very, very difficult. Very few opportunities for her to to make an income, to be able to provide for herself. And so the pain and the difficulty is only increased. In a very sad way, the large crowd presents a very ironic contrast to the actual state of the woman. She was alone in this world. No longer a provider, no longer a protector. Tomorrow would come and she would awaken alone, brokenhearted, vulnerable, and in complete silence. And as they all make their way to the grave, when the burial was over, all of the people would go back to their lives just as normal. But she, she would, she would continue carrying the sorrow. She would continue in the desperation alone. Of course, a few neighbors and friends would probably check on her and be by her side. But not in the still of the night. Not in the early morning. She would have to go home and see the belongings of her son. To to smell his clothes again. Just like she had done before with her husband. But this time without a son to comfort her. The period was set and the sentence ended before it had ever been written. So she walked, and she mourned, and she wondered what to do next. And then Jesus shows up. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, and take note, this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke when he refers to Jesus as the Lord in this sense. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, And said to her, do not weep. And where Luke writes here that Jesus had compassion, he uses a word that also speaks of a person's inner parts. The internal organs of a person. 
It describes an emotion or a response that is not just a sort of pity or a a feeling sorry for someone because of the circumstances, but rather a deep physical emotion that describes a hurting that one has for someone else in distress or in heartbreak. It's like a parent who sees their child in physical pain and just wants to take it from them. They feel the pain with their child. It has a physical effect on them. In the same way, John, the Apostle John records this when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember, he heard from Lazarus' sisters as they had come to tell Jesus that he had died. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved. And, and the word that John uses to describe that is, it describes it the snorting of a horse. In other words, Jesus was so deeply moved by the death of Lazarus that he let out an audible gasp, a groan of pain and sorrow in his heart. And remember, as he heard that, Jesus began to weep. One commentator wrote, He gave way to such distress of spirit as made his body tremble. What a compassionate Savior is Jesus. The writer of Lamentations records, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And where we often have the inability to express sorrow or to experience pain as others lose their loved ones and experience heartbreak, Jesus in his humanity, Jesus in his sinlessness, in his utter self-forgetfulness, is moved by the tears and the heartbreak of others. Have Have you ever wept until your tears ran dry? Are you so heartbroken Do you grieve and experience such sorrow that you feel alone and without consolation? The prophet Isaiah said Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. William Barclay once wrote, In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief And to the sufferer sends relief. And you know, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Jesus comes across a woman with whom he is not acquainted up to this point, and yet seeing her in such deep distress and heartfelt pain and sorrow, immediately he physically hurts for this woman. And he has pain with her and immediately moves to comfort her. And he tells her, do not weep. This was not some harsh rebuke. This was not some way for Jesus to simply silence the woman. It was a word of hope. There's something miraculous and wonderful that is about to happen. Do not weep. 
Look at verse 14. Then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now a bier was a frame. It's, it's like a stretcher, kind of an open coffin. And it was carried in a way that the dead body could be seen by everyone as it passed by. So, so Jesus quietly walks up. And Luke records that all of the bearers just stood still. What were they thinking, do you suppose? What is he about to do? Remember, at this point, there are many, many people standing around. Between the the funeral procession from town and all of the people who've been following Jesus, there is a large crowd. And I have in mind a picture of all of these people standing. It's silent. And they're waiting. And they're wondering, what is going on? What is about to happen? And here, life and death are standing face to face. Hundreds of eyeballs locked on Jesus. And he reaches out and he touches the stretcher. Now you recall, touching a coffin or a stretcher was unclean according to the ceremonial law. But Jesus also knew that the law requires mercy above sacrifice. And as he touched the beer with a a clear commanding voice, Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. What a profound, authoritative statement. I say to you. We have seen Jesus' authority so far over sickness, over disease, over demons, over the weather. But this, this is something entirely different. Death. The great foe of man brought into the world by the sin of Adam as a perpetual reminder of our great need for redemption, our great reminder of the inescapable reality that all is not right in the world. And here stands Jesus in complete and total authority saying, Arise! And look what happens in verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Without delay, the young man sits up. He's restored to life. Oh, what a glorious display of the divine power of Jesus. Notice here, unlike what we saw with Jesus healing the centurion servant last week, there's no mention made of anyone's faith. This is all about Jesus and his great power over death. And he reminds us that his ability and willingness to bring about restored life is not dependent upon the faith of the one who is healed, but only on the power and the willingness of the healer. By his word alone, the sick were healed and the dead were raised to life. And do you know that the very same Jesus, with the same authoritative word, brought you where you are today, Christian? And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in his coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so no man may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, we, like this young man, were dead. Not sick, not diseased, Not in bed with pneumonia in need of some medicine or a boost of adrenaline. Dead. And at the right time, the outstretched hand of Jesus touched your grave. And you heard the powerful words of his powerful voice. Young man, young lady, old man, old lady, child, arise. And the chains of death fell off. And your heart was set free from the bondage of sin and death. And do you see how glorious is the sovereign grace of God? He didn't plead with the young man. He didn't wring his hands in hope that he would respond. He didn't say, you know, it's probably getting a bit cold there. If you will just make the decision to respond to what I'm saying right now, things will, things will warm up. You'll make your mother happy. That's ludicrous. There's no reasoning with a dead man. There's no negotiating with a corpse. And you, brothers and sisters, when you were dead, Jesus didn't coerce or cajole you. He said, arise. And by his grace, you did. He made you able and he made you willing. Praise be to God. And so I ask, friend, has Jesus brought you from death to life? I know it may not seem as though you're dead. After all, you're sitting here right now. You hear my voice. You're listening to these words. It's all very real. And you're breathing. And you have a beating heart. But you may still very well be a slave to your sin. In bondage to our great adversary, the devil. And spiritually, you are six feet under. The Bible tells us in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Have you repented of your sin and placed all of your hope and all of your treasure and all of your satisfaction and all of your assurance in Jesus Christ? Oh, dear friend, 
Why won't you look to Jesus? He is your only hope for life. He is the only assurance of freedom from death. And we see the response of the people as they see this great work of Jesus bringing a dead man to life. We see a response, the only response that could be elicited in such a time as this. Look at verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Literally, verse 16 says, Fear took possession of all. Now, this isn't terror, but a holy awe. They had seen something miraculous. They had beheld the divine, and they knew it. A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. This is a common Old Testament expression describing God's actions on behalf of his people. And in this entire account... No doubt, in the minds of the Jewish people, there's another little gem tucked away here that we have to consider. Over 500 years prior to Jesus' entrance into the town of Nain, the prophet Elijah had gone into another small town called Zarephath. And as he approaches the city gate, he met a widow who had only one son who had become ill and died. If you want to read with me, I'm going to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17, we're going to look at verses 19 through 24. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth, is true. So you see, what Jesus did with this young man at Nain was nearly, not completely, but nearly identical to that which was performed by Elijah. Notice verse 15 in Luke says that Jesus gave him to his mother. Likewise, 1 Kings 15, 23, we read that Elijah delivered him to his mother. A similar language, nearly identical results. And the widow was convinced that Elijah now is a man of God. A prophet who spoke the words of God. 
And again, we see this similar response from the people with Jesus. But here's what's very significant and very important in the difference between the two accounts. We certainly understand that Jesus is far greater than a prophet. He's no mere spokesman for God. Obviously, the people of Nain and those who followed Jesus still didn't really know what to think of Jesus. But their conditioned response was to at least assume, at the very least, he's a prophet. He's a man of God, undoubtedly. There certainly must have been an instant realization among many of them that the long-awaited time of the Messiah must be upon them. God has visited his people. If you remember the words of Zechariah in Luke 1.68, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people when he beheld the great truth of the coming of Christ. And so it was very evident to all that Jesus had come in Elijah-like power. God had visited his people indeed. But you see, there's a very glaring difference here between the account with Elijah and this with Jesus. In 1 Kings, we read that Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Ah, but Jesus... Jesus approached the stretcher and he touched it and he simply said, Arise. And it was so. The work of God through Elijah was miraculous and powerful and wonderful in every way. But the work of Jesus is far greater. And of course, from here, we see the fame of Jesus continue to increase across the land all the more in verse 17. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And so here we see two wonderful truths about Jesus. He is full of genuine compassion and he has great and awesome power. The souls of men and women grieve not only because of death, but because of all sorts of things. The loss of a relationship, the rejection of others making us feel worthless, the betrayal of friends and loved ones leaving deep wounds and enduring scars in our lives, a depressed heart that finds any positive thought nearly impossible to comprehend. In this fallen world we will endure a tremendous amount of hurts and failures. But isn't it great to know that our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, Jesus has great compassion on us? And even more comforting perhaps is that He has the power and the authority to cause us to persevere. He has bore our griefs and our sorrows. And he knows our pain. Now we must know that he will not always do whatever we ask of him in our prayers. But he will answer one prayer completely every time. Not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. 
in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our pain. It may not seem like it, but it truly is for our greatest good and for His greatest glory that God does exactly as He does in answering our prayers how He does. He will bring His mercy, He will bring His compassion to bear on the points of pain and sorrow in our lives. He will bring healing. He will bring true life. The great Baptist missionary from America to Burma, Adoniram Judson, who we just learned about last week in our missions conference, he had 13 children. Seven of them died on the mission field. Each one of them as painful as the first. Now, Judson's first wife was named Anne. And before she herself died, she bore the first three children to Adoniram, and all three of them died. The first baby was nameless, was born just as they sailed from India to Burma. The second child, Roger Williams Judson, lived to 17 months and died. And the third, Maria Elizabeth Butterworth Judson, lived to be two years old. She outlived her mother by six months and then she died. I want you to imagine the pain of a mother's heart under such circumstances. But even so, listen to what she wrote in her journal. When her second child died, Ann Judson wrote this. Our hearts were bound up with this child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that we will stay his hand and say, it is enough. My goodness, what incredible faith and hope and assurance in the sovereignty of God. You see, what sustained Adoniram and Ann Judson was a rock-solid confidence that God is sovereign and God is good. And all things come from His hand for the good. Sometimes the incredibly painful good of His children. Most likely, we're not going to see the Lord bring those around us who die back to life in the physical sense. Not now. Not yet. We, like the Judsons, must have rock-solid confidence in the sovereign plan of God that while all around us may give way, He is all our hope and stay. He is all we have. He is all we need. He's our only hope. And oh, may it be for us all that we can say, whatever providence is ours to bear, Jesus is enough. What God has provided is enough. So often our countenance is low, our faith is weak, our hope is lost. So often we feel the sorrow of life and the pain of, su of suffering and the burden of sin and the fallenness all around us. But do you know that God sees it necessary to remind us 
where all of our hope resides. It is in Him. It is in Jesus. And we must be praying as we consider our lives all that we have in Christ and say, it is enough. It is enough. Jesus is enough. Death will come to sting. Suffering will continue to inflict us. Sin will persist in all of its menacing ways, but our hope is far greater than this life. There will come a day when Jesus will once again speak the word to you, dear saint. Arise. And the same voice that raised that poor babbling young man from death will be trumpeted into the depths of the sea, into the center of the mountains, and into the dust and molecules of God's physically dead children. And all who know Christ will hear it and arise and see Jesus as whole. No coffin will be able to contain the eternally well bodies of God's people as they ascend and rest in the presence of Jesus. We will hear it. We will all hear it. Get up, Jesse. Get up, Richard. Get up, Kenny. Arise. It's resurrection morning. And so the Apostle Paul writes, we will be with the Lord forever. The perishable puts on the imperishable. The the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, dear saints, we will weep but only for a little while longer. Not like those in the world, but as those with great hope. Great, satisfying, deep, abiding, everlasting hope in our Savior and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That sting of death shall not last. He has brought His children to life in Him. And so can we not trust him eternally with all things? Amen.